Welcome to Podcast Party. Here, you'll hear all about things AIA, from advocacy and history to design awards and resiliency. Each month, we'll cover a different but timely topic for our listeners to receive and reflect upon, thus making us well-rounded members of the design world. Thanks for spending some time with me, AIA North Carolina staff member Maggie Whittemore today. Now, let's get this podcast party started. there and welcome to the first episode of podcast party we here at aia north carolina are so excited to start this new project for not only our members but anyone who is interested in learning about architecture and design i hope you are all doing well and are ready for an interview packed episode today today we will be discussing the culture of architecture and design in the triangle There is no doubt that architecture and design are alive and well in the region as we see new projects going up around us every day and more firms submitting for design awards. But what really goes on behind the scenes? How are architects working together to further the practice? What has been done in the past and what is being done today? We collected a panel of architects from around the triangle to answer those questions for you and more. Starting off, We have a discussion led by Dennis Stallings, FAIA of Clark Nexon, and featuring Phil Shostak, FAIA of Shostak Design, and Frank Harmon, FAIA. So let's go back a few decades to the 90s to learn about the Triangle Architecture and Design Society, or TADS for short, and how the design community learned to support one another. Tell us about the idea of TADS and how, how it came to be, how, how it really got started. Well, I think I, w- I was personally struggling architecturally. I think everybody that came to the table at TADS were all adjunct faculty or, or faculty over at the School of Design. And uh, the, the camaraderie that we felt in a jury was just very exciting to me. And so, you know, just trying to think about what could we do to, and maybe selfishly, what could I do to make my work better, to understand what I'm doing? Because, you know, I'm kind of in a vacuum in the corporate sense. You know, I'm leading design for my firm, but who's leading me? Where's my mentor? And so, you know, I really respected these people. Some of the, some of the uh, people in TADS, like Roger Clark, one of my professors. So when I was in school in, in the early 70s, Roger scared the hell out of me. Still does. Still does. <laughs> to this day. Yes. And, and Kenneth Hobgood's work was so great. Uh, you know, Jeff Lee, who was my, my roommate, you know, Roger Cannon, Frank. It was all, you know, we all kind of knew each other on periphery. I guess I knew Jeffrey much better, but it was always, you know, we met over dinner and we talked about what we were doing before TADS, but then it was like, well, let's show me what you're doing. And so those things uh, really, really helped me see what I was doing and kind of mentored me. And so your comments about uh, mentorship, you know, almost as a group. And then when we started pinning up design awards before we entered them to talk about graphics and what's important, what are we showing? You know, it really started this whole refocus on architecture for me. 
And so uh, it's really led me back, you know, to what I really love doing. So um, I know TADS was around for probably over 20 years. And uh, as I said earlier, we met, we met every month. And there were times where, um, but we, I think the critiques were always honest and candid. There were times where they were probably brutal. And I know you can speak to that personally uh, because you designed your own house and pinned it up for us. I did. I still have that model pinned up in my, uh, the office uh, men's room. It reminds me uh, of those times and kind of trying to understand what I do. I still think it was a pretty nice design. And I still go back to that, that partee several times. And I, I think back that maybe I'm this diagram thing that we started talking about as being important is taking over too much of what I do. And so that, that house was, was less of a diagram and more of a form. Uh, but it really, really, uh, uh, I really encountered a lot of pushback from it. Uh, and, and I had to ask myself why uh, to that. But it was always great to, uh, to get that feedback. And even today I'm going, I need to get, get these guys back. I, I need help on this one project we're doing in Greensboro. Where am I going in the right direction? And, you know, I see, you know, some of the younger firms winning, winning awards. I go, I'm 66. I need to, to go rethink what I'm doing. I need to restart. I need to get that, that energy back about challenging what I do. And I think that TADS group really helped. You know, when we started it, it was really about, I think we had seven guys that enjoyed good wine and good food and talking about architecture. And that's what, it, what led to it being a little bit more serious endeavor when we started kind of curating uh, what the, who was talking when and what are we presenting. And, and I believe it was 1997, it kind of culminated in the, uh, the Art of Architecture show at the Duke Museum, which was a great endeavor for, for me to get involved with because it made me curate what I thought was important at that time. And it's really, it'd be a great thing to do every 10 years just to check yourself. But uh, it was always just a, a wonderful time that I look forward to uh, every month and when we took the summer off or Christmas off it was it was someone was missing but it was it was a time to celebrate and we did have our Christmas dinners at people's houses and and stuff to to celebrate architecture and you know, of course we all showed up at the awards dinners and things like that that to help celebrate each other so it was fun so I know this is a, a was a fairly unique idea. Um, your, your colleagues around the country that may be in other chapters, did you talk about the idea of TADS with them? And if so, what was, what was their reaction? People were always surprised that we were able to share things. I mean, I would walk into other people's offices if I went to New York and they would say, stop right there. You can't come in here. You can't see this work. You know, it's very private. You know, 
And here in North Carolina, we were sharing who our clients were, not just not just the projects. It was what does this client what is this client saying? What does he want out of these projects? It wasn't such a a, a line at the front door where you couldn't see what was being built until it was built. And people really thought it was very different that we had this openness about what we were doing and I didn't see it as anything special because that's what we we did. Uh, um, I still don't think it's, we, I think we should be sharing and talking about what we do just like if we were in school. You know, we talk about all those reasons and why we do things and craft, and it's still today uh, something that that I would love to do on a monthly basis. And particularly in the end, when we started bringing in other artists and, and landscape architects and things like that, that we could now influence us even further uh, away. Because when it was the Triangle Architecture and Design Society, it was that we were bringing in other designers, not just architects that are focused just on architecture. Yeah, I remember, you know, a lot of these times, the when I was uh, doing the Durham Performing Arts Center, presenting it to Tads, and, and really getting this skeptical look back from the group about what in the world are you doing? You know, you've never done a theater before, or the East Carolina Science Building. But we admired your, the way you were going about it and the way you were combining some very practical ideas that had never been used in theater design before. And when you took us to see it, when it was finished, we were thrilled. So uh, to Phil and to Frank, was anything like TADS going on elsewhere in North Carolina or even in the nation uh, at that time or since then? Well, there was the Urban Institute in Manhattan and the Architectural League. They had been engaged for uh, 50 or more years in activities of this nature, but nothing on a personal level like TADS. And in the 70s in Atlanta, there was a group that included Mac and Merrill Elam and the Heary brothers, and they came together and wore tuxedos and had fabulous meals and talked about design. I would love to have done the tuxedo thing, but it, it was a very intimate, you know, group that we put together. And, and I think a lot of what Tad's did uh, is exactly what happens when you get other, you know, friends from, from uh, your schools of architecture that people attend to and they have these intimate conversations or go visit somebody at their office and you get these, these quick little snippets. But I think... Uh, the institutionalizing of, of this event and, and scheduling it and and things like that, uh, you know, really really was was quite different. And I think that one of the things I'd like to add on, on that, you know, we ended up having some some problems with Tad, Tads, and and there was there was like this membership club that that was closed, you know, and who who we allowed to join that uh, caused friction. You know, there were a lot of people that, that thought that they wanted to be invited or they weren't invited. And I think that's one of the things that slowed us down. 
you know, we, it was just the seven of us, and then we started growing, and we got up to, like, 20. And, you know, I, I'm not going to Durham. I'm not going to Chapel Hill. You know, it, it, it started getting almost beyond this very intimate group of people. Um, and that's one of the things I regret. But I think, Phil, to your credit, um, you were you were always inclusive. You always thought about how the group could grow, uh, the composition of the group and the diversity of the group. And so, you know, I, I have a slightly different take than you do. Um, I think you were you were all about growing it and um, even furthering this idea of sharing knowledge and sharing ideas. I think there was probably a, a certain critical mass. Uh, at which point it was it was highly functional, and perhaps the larger they grew, maybe the less functional it became. Um, the, it seemed like there was always a sort of a core group or the same group of people that you know would go wherever. You know, you know, like a play, people come together, they are devoted to each other, and then they go apart. I think one of the other really really unique things and great things about TADS is that not only uh, did we invite people into our, into our offices and share our work, but oftentimes we were competing for the same projects. And uh, either at the time or we would pin up work that, uh, or someone would pin up work that we had also uh, pursued and were not successful. But uh, it was, we came together again with this idea of sharing and furthering our knowledge and learning from, from others. And I think that was the really the great success of, of TADS that I think is still, is still felt today even though we don't continue to meet every month. I think, um, you know, it, again, it, for me personally, it made me aware of, of everything that I did because I, I, I knew who I had to present it to. And while I'm not doing that to this day, I think the, the idea of that still remains with me and I think with others as well. Welcome back to Podcast Party. A huge thanks goes to Dennis, Phil, and Frank for coming in to join us today. We are now going to jump forward to the present day and talk with Aaron Sterling Lewis, FAIA of Institu Studio, and Robbie Johnston, AIA of the Raleigh Architecture Company, to discuss the current culture of architecture and design in the Triangle. As you just heard Phil, Frank, and Dennis discuss, back in the mid-90s, Phil started the idea called TADS, the Triangle Architecture and Design Society. It was a way for a group of designers in the Triangle to get together to share their work and critique each other's work with the idea that through that practice, their work collectively got better. Is there a way that you all, as the next generation of designers in the Triangle, connect or share work with each other? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I know that um, kind of a, a little mini spin-off of TADS, um, there's a, a small group that uh, was formed a couple of years ago. We called ourselves the Architecture Group, um, and it's, it's, it was localized to just Raleigh. Um, a few folks, a few of us who really wanted to get together and um, 
in some ways talk about everything but architecture, um, but inevitably we would talk about architecture and the practice and things like that. It was focused on um, principles, I think, of firms, of small firms. Um, and so we met a few times, very similar to Tad's. Um, but the other way that we share work, I think it's not just between us and our generation, but um, I feel like work is shared really well in this community, in the Triangle especially. Um, and that's anywhere from social media sharing to um, when we see each other at events. Um, we're all very curious, nosy people <laughs> about each other's works and ideas and successes. And um, I think that we're always on the look for projects that are under construction, um, sneaking through those and going on tours. It's a very, very supportive uh, community. And I don't see that stopping at all in future generations. Right. Yeah, social media is most powerful for knowing where Matt and Aaron and Vinny and Catherine are in the world so that I know I can visit their projects without being caught. Um, <laughs> so we, we use it on a lot of different levels. Um, now I would say that the social media aspect has been, um, it allows everyone the opportunity to feel free to share their work. I don't think we use that as a tool to critique design. I think um, it really has been used to, to stay aware of what is going on in the world locally and beyond. I think, you know, we don't have to seek books anymore to find out what's happening in the world of architecture. Everything is coming to us at a million miles an hour in real time. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, the things that becomes necessary is the, the ability to, to really edit those streams and, and focus on what is, what is important to you, what is important to your community. Um, what is needed um, and in responding in those ways. I think the architecture group that we've had in the past has been, it was, it was not really built around the idea of critiquing our work. Um, I think as small business owners, first and foremost, you know, we wanted the opportunity just to get together and get off the islands that we were all on. Um, and I think our work probably inherently becomes stronger when we recognize that all of us are dealing with the same exact issues day to day, inside out, same struggles with clients, same struggles with finance, the same struggles with chasing work, the same struggles with trying to participate in your community on a level that keeps you recognized um, while trying to get the work done on a daily basis. And uh, I think that was, was extremely helpful in that way. And uh, we've got plenty of time to figure out how we centralize that conversation around architecture. I feel that both of you and your generation of architects is more active within their communities than others. I think that you have a different way of connecting with diverse audiences through your community outreach, which differs from TADS. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's really easy in our profession to just keep your nose down and do your work and go into the office, work your however many hours and leave and do the same thing. Just repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, I was really fortunate to lift my head up and be supported in doing so by Frank Harmon when I worked with him um, to basically get out of the office and look around and see what else is going on in the world. And the I just I can't say enough about what that has meant for me and the way that I see architecture and the practice of architecture. I mean, fellowship alone. Um, with so many people around the state is just remarkable. And it's really wonderful and inspiring to see what so many different firms are doing around our state. Um, 
especially the triangle, just because that's where I am. Um, it was just so, so humbling <laughs> to get out of uh, the routine and go out and, and serve the community. I think architects have a really unique way of seeing the world and we can offer more than I think we sometimes realize. Um, and it's not until you you put yourself in that position in the community where you can see how important our voices are as designers and creative problem solvers. Um, so yeah, I think community service also is, is really, um, it's, it's easy to do here, maybe now in our generation, I'll speak specifically in Raleigh because that's where um, Robbie and I are, but the fact that we entered into the practice of architecture in a time when Raleigh really was growing and booming, and I think we could see in our young, naive minds um, a place for us to make a difference, um, knowing that Raleigh was trying to decide what it wanted to be, and in some ways still is. So there's something really refreshing about knowing that any impact we try to have usually works out in some way or another. Any of us, all of us, uh, as practicing architects, the skill set has to be so rounded. Um, I think especially in a small practice, no one has the luxury of specialized service or even talent. And so having the ability to not only perform the duties of an architect, to do a set of drawings, to understand what a party is, to submit for an award, but just the ability to, to communicate with people um, through the tool of architecture and then you know just, just with our clients on a day-to-day -day basis. I think those skill sets are, are needed in the community. Um, they're needed on boards, they're needed in organizations, they're needed on committees um, at a municipal level, at a private level, at every level. Um, Prior to starting Raleigh Architecture with Craig, I worked for Steve Schuster at Clearscapes. And mandatory may be a strong word, but I think it was mandatory that if you were going to work at Clearscapes, you were also going to participate in the community. And probably prior to that, um, I had not been exposed to that approach. Um, I had not seen that as a way to not only be involved, but a way to create relationships that mattered um, on another level as far as just getting work, um, but you know that was, that was a challenge that um, was new to me there, and we just finished our employee reviews last week, um, and that was one of the things that we actually have just started challenging our, our company to do, is everybody has interest, everyone ha has a passion, um, everyone has a hobby that's outside architecture, um, and those things not, might not always be aligned with the work that we are directly doing in the office. And so we're encouraging everyone to decide what that is for them and take the skill sets that they've developed in our office, in school, anywhere else they've worked in life in general and, and begin to apply those to make our community a better place and hopefully a more equitable place um, for everyone, especially in insane time of, of growth. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned um, Steve Schuster because it makes me think just to this question that it's not necessarily unique to our generation because in the same way you were inspired by Steve Schuster, I, I actually was too even though I never worked with him, um, but I mean Frank served the same degree of inspiration for anyone who worked in his office too um, with the amount that he gave of himself to others, other organizations, boards he was on and, and things like that. So set a really strong, amazing example of how else to serve <laughs> in the practice of architecture, not just in, in an office setting. A more specific question for you, Aaron, as a follow-up to our last, is about Activate. How is it a different approach to public awareness than AIA efforts in the past? 
Um, so activate, I think even just by the, the very nature of the word activate in some ways that, that says it all. Um, so activate was, um, born out of a desire to, it actually came from this, the center uh, for architecture and design here when AIA North Carolina, um, had its new headquarters. That was a really big deal. Um, and so how do you literally activate a building, activate a space, activate community conversations? Um, and so the, the idea of Activate was born. Um, and it was a response to uh, sitting around in a lot of board meetings in my very younger years and hearing architects talk a lot about how Nobody understands the value of architects. Nobody understands the value of architecture. What are we gonna do? And I was realizing after a long time of listening to these conversations, we're talking at ourselves and nobody's doing anything. And so with very little to, to no money, um, we started to turn that whole question on its head and start creating those things and creating those conversations and opportunities for us to put ourselves out there um, and not just wait for people to realize uh, what our value is. But how do architects in a community with all of these skills that we've been talking about how do we take that um, and really showcase that, but in a way that is welcoming and inviting to the general public to do that? So um, from that, just a series of seminars and um, lectures and events and exhibits in the building were born out of that. And then it was very successful here um, on a local level and it eventually went statewide and was a way for everybody in the state with AIA in this branded effort of Activate um, to start to let communities become aware of what architects can do in their community. Do you think it's a response to how the younger generation wants to portray architecture to the community? I think so, and that's that's another thing. I, I do think that um, the spirit of Activate speaks to the younger generations in the sense that, um, the, I, and I don't mean this to, to be a negative thing at all, but the younger generations of folks are a little impatient, um, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, what it means is that they're not always satisfied by um, just projects they're working on in an office that can take up to three years or more for them to see it from beginning to end. Um, they're very full of energy and ideas and they really want to have an impact that they can see. And so Activate is an opportunity for them to plug into uh, more instant gratification um, that really feeds their soul in the creative realm um, and also allows them to have a voice, you know, no matter how old you are. If you have an idea that can serve your community well and you can make a case for it, you'll probably be given some money through the Activate program here at AIA North Carolina um, to make that idea come to life and make a huge difference. And I think young people really, really gravitate towards that and they love to have that kind of impact. As one last question, I'm going to ask you both to look ahead 20 to 30 years from now and think about where your practice may be, as well as the practice of architecture as a whole. Um, yeah, I, I am excited about the next 20 or 30 years. 30 seems like a lot, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Whew, um, 
But I think for for Matt and I, what we talk about in the office um, is, you know, over the years we have both seen dozens of people either come through our office or offices where we have worked, and it has been fascinating to follow along with them and their paths in the practice of architecture. And I think as a result of the recession, we saw um, how people defined the practice of architecture changing and taking the skill set that we are educated on or educated with um, and turning it into unexpected ways of practice. Um, I think that's really, really exciting. I think um, architects are naturally creative problem solvers um, and we all feel a certain responsibility to serve and that is both um, in the realm of contractual agreements you might have with clients, but also I think a lot of us architects, given the fact that we know we are creative problem solvers, um, a lot of our responsibility comes from a sense of purpose. And so at our office, one thing we talk about doing a lot and feel we're almost perhaps established enough to start thinking about ways that our office can serve on a bigger level um, to society, and that sounds really big and vague, and it is. We talk about it in, in more detail about our fantasies. Um, but in short, I think in the next 20 to 30 years, I would love to see our office um, practice architecture in a way that expands the skills that we have um, and can have a bigger impact on um, our built environment, our communities, not, not just a, a, a building that's built that we see all the way through construction, but on much deeper levels. Um, I mean, fundamentally, I hope in 20, 30 years that we have a, a more, the, the practice of architecture is more diverse. Um, I think we still struggle with uh, gender. We still struggle with, you know, people of color. The, the numbers are so unbelievably staggering low. Um, I mean, I think there's still less than 1,000, maybe less than 500 um, practicing female architects of color in the United States. Um, the first licensed architect, um, female of color, is still alive. She was at the North Carolina Museum of Art on a mm -hmm. panel this past year. Um, and just to sort of I think get in touch with that history, get in touch with how recent um, you know, all of these big changes um, have even even had the ability to take place. Um, but really thinking how we as a profession um, can continue to create equitable environments for, for everyone. Um, I think the world is more interesting when everyone is involved. I think the practice of architecture is no different. Um, the more inclusive it becomes, the better the work gets, the more exciting it gets, the more value I think our society will place on it. So, you know, it's it's one thing to just sort of be aware. I think our practice has, we actually have been doing equity training recently um, where we spend mornings with different groups as an entire office um, where we really are challenged to think about this, to talk about this, to get emotional as a group about it. Um, and to try to find ways we think we can change that about who we are, what we do, and who's involved. Um, so, I mean, I think that's, that's number one. I think technology in our office has actually been more influential to the process of project management than it has been project designing or making. Um, and I've seen a lot of people come and go in this profession that were extremely intelligent, extremely passionate, and extremely talented. 
And so we've been really focused on just how do we create a more sustainable practice? How do we make this uh, a better balancing act? Um, and so we've been working really hard on, um, with the help of every single person in our office because they really brought it to our attention and they really care and they want to stay passionate about what we do. But just keeping track of, you know, um, our time, our projects, our clients, our deliverables, um, and really using technology as a, as a tool to manage that um, because there are so many plates constantly in the air. Um, and the more efficient we can get at, at any one thing um, is extremely helpful. So that's, that's been another thing. Just too many people have, have burned out and we're trying to figure out how to keep it sustainable long term. Um, I don't think that, not fooling myself here, I think the hustle is always going to be required. Um, I personally thrive off that. Not everyone, you know, may. And so I think, you know, I, I want to be doing this with other people for as long as I'm practicing. You know, we chose not to be sole proprietors for a reason. And we're just trying to find ways to manage those relationships, manage those expectations, manage workflow in a way that everyone is their best self while they're at work. Thank you again for joining us today for Podcast Party. We would like to thank all of our guests for lending us their time, experience, and stories today. We hope to have you join us again for our next episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast to keep the party going. See you next time.